Let me read to you uh, this account. Um, there's a book called Into Thin Air. It's about this disastrous ascent to Everest. Uh, me and the lads were actually talking about it yesterday uh, after the, the football game. Um, and uh, in this account, uh, where just loads of people die at the top of the mountain, um, he, he has this account, which I just wanted to bring to us this morning. It says this. On October the 16th, 1995, Goran Kropp left Stockholm on a custom-built bicycle loaded with 240 pounds of gear. He intended to travel uh, a, a round trip from sea level in Sweden to the top of Everest, entirely under his own power, without support or bottled oxygen. It was an exceedingly ambitious goal. Uh, but Krop had the essentials to pull it off. He'd been on six previous Himalayan expeditions and he'd made solo ascents of Broad Peak, Cho, Oyo and K2. During the 8,000 mile bike ride to Kathmandu, I cycled, what's it, about 14 kilometres to work? 8,000 mile bike trip to Kathmandu. He was robbed by Romanian school children. He was assaulted by a crowd in Pakistan. In Iran, an irate motorcyclist, and I know these, an irate motorcyclist broke a baseball bat over Crop's uh, head but it was in a helmet, so he made it through. He nevertheless arrived intact at the foot of Everest uh, in early April um, and immediately began acclimatisation trips up uh, the lower mountain. So you have to get used to the thinner air where there, there's uh, uh, less oxygen. Um, then, on Wednesday, 1st of May, he departed base camp for the top. Crop reached his high camp at 26,000 feet. So Everest is uh, 29,000, so he's got a few thousand feet to go. Crop reached his high camp on the South Pole on Thursday and then left for the top the following morning, just after midnight. Everybody at base camp stayed close by their radios throughout the day, anxiously waiting for word of his progress. Uh, one of our team put up a, uh, a sign saying, go Goran, go. For the first time in months, almost no wind blasted the summit, but the snow on the upper mountain was thigh deep, making for slow, exhausting progress. Crop bulled his way relentlessly upward through the drifts, uh, and however, uh, by two o'clock, he'd reached 28,700 feet. So that's 300 feet beneath the summit just below the south summit. But even though the top was no more than 60 minutes above, he decided to turn round, believing that he would be too tired to descend safely if he climbed any higher. To turn round that close to the summit, our guide said with a shake of his head, as Crop plodded past Camp 2 on his way down, that showed incredibly good judgement on young Goran's part. I'm impressed, considerably more impressed than if he continued climbing and made the top. So I wonder what our reaction to that story is. Under how we would feel. If we are feeling uh, confident, perhaps 
for our, our own physicality, we might wonder at this young Swede's timidity. Couldn't he have summoned the strength to make it up that last 329 feet? He'd come so far. Why uh, um, sort of uh, chicken out at the last moment? Other of us might listen to his story and celebrate the fact that he'd already done most of what he wanted to do. And just as he hit near that peak, he knew his limits. He knew uh, uh, the restraint and the damage thin air uh, can bring to a man's activities, how it can reduce their brain function and how Mount Everest kills each year people who don't know their limits. Still others wonder why he ever bothered at all. Uh, why did he ever leave the comfort of his home, probably a roaring fire by a field, and uh, uh, why did he bother 8,000 miles on a bike of all things? Why endure hardship? Why uh, leave his comfort zone? The first group of people, they're the ones that dismiss the, the thin hair. You know, who cares? So we're going to make it through. And this is the sort of attitude that leaves frozen corpses on the Himalayas, that you don't realise uh, there are limits to your ability. The last group are those that know what it is to face difficult situations. And the, even the idea of thin air is repellent. And they hate to feel inadequate. They hate to feel out of their comfort zone. They hate to feel uncomfortable. And those are the different positions. Today, if you are far from God, you have an enormous luxury. You can stay at home or you can travel miles. You can lay by the fjords or ascend whatever mountain you choose. You can be lazy or uh, full of vim and effort. And you can do it on a whim because you are your own God. You are the own arbiter of what is right and wrong. And that is by and large how the world lives. But the problem is, if you are our own God, and if you decide what's right and what's wrong, and what should be kind and what shouldn't, then you are undone by the fact, ultimately anything you do is meaningless. There is no purpose. You have just made these things up. They are constructs in your own psyche, and they lead you nowhere. It is ultimately pointless whether you enjoy comfort or endure every hour hardship. If you are your own God, then you are going nowhere. Let me uh, turn in the Message Bible. So if you've got uh, uh, the NIV or something, you may struggle to follow along. But it says this um, at the beginning of the book of Mark. Passing along the beach of the Lake of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and his brother Andrew fishing with nets. Fishing was their regular work. 
Jesus said to them, come with me. I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I will show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions. They dropped their nets and followed. A dozen or so yards down the beach, he saw brothers James and John, Zebedee's sons, there in the boat, mending their fishnets. Right off, he made the very same offer. Immediately, they left their father Zebedee, the boat and the hired hands, and they followed Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear with these disciples um, that you don't just get to add him to their lives. You don't just get to add Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit to uh, a comfortable existence. If they are to follow Jesus, if they are to love God, if they are to know the Holy Spirit, then they have to participate on a lifelong journey. There is a lifelong movement of knowing him better and doing his will. It is not a statutory existence. It's not a stationary thing. It is an ever-evolving, ever-moving forward, ever-progressing life. And today, we who are near God, we who love Jesus and call him as our saviour, we are both blessed and restricted by this. We have purpose and it is a blessing and a curse. We have faith, hope and love. You know, when we're on our sickbed or when someone else is suffering, we can uh, uh, pray and have hope and we can have an eternal perspective and all these things can uh, uh, cause us to live on. But suddenly we also live lives that are that are closed off as well. We don't get to do what we want. We are not our own masters. We don't say, oh, today I'm going to laze, laze by the fjord and then tomorrow I'm going to sound, ascend Mount Everest. This is not our life. We are restricted by the call of Jesus and he leads us where he will. We don't get to choose. We are not our own masters. We are not our own gods. And that brings blessings and curses. But even though this is the reality Christians live, not all Christians enter into it with the same enthusiasm. Some Christians, they charge ahead idiotically, um, completely uh, unaware or unthinking of the consequences of the actions. They see Mount Everest, they feel God call them up, and then they make that last 300 feet, thinking this is the best idea. Others drag their feet, and they're slow to follow, and they don't want to leave behind their comforts, and they don't want to be uh, someone else's servant. They don't want to have to hear God's voice to move. They don't want to leave their comfort zones. And so you have the people uh, uh, that charge into the thin air without the second store and the people that would rather be anywhere else but the thin air. And this morning, I want us to do two things. I want us to long for that thin air of God's calling and I want us to be careful of it. 
So today, uh, as we continue through the story of the Exodus, uh, we are uh, looking at this moment when God calls Moses, when he sets him apart, uh, when he reveals his name and shows him the mission that he has. And it is something scary and intimidating. This nobody, no man, and make mistake, he is of no consequence living in the desert with a bunch of people that have no home to call their own. And he is going to confront the world's biggest empire. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a Somalian pirate coming and challenging uh, Joe Biden and saying, you need to stop what you're doing? This Moses, this nomad, this shepherd, this old man, he is to go to the king of an empire and say, those people you are oppressing, that you are deliberately killing, you need to let them free. You need to stop exploiting them. You need to let them go and worship the own God. And it is not surprising that this old man is not very uh, um, enthusiastic about this idea. He has been shunned by the Egyptians and Israelites. He has found a home in the desert. He has his wife and child with him. And he has a comfortable existence. And God says, go. Come, follow me. If you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4. But again, I am going to uh, read from uh, the message translation because I've been enjoying it. And there's an excellent turn of phrase um, that we're going to look at a little later. So Exodus chapter 4, uh, verse 10. It says this. Moses raised another objection to God. I wonder if you've ever done that. God's asking something and you've got a list of things that God hasn't thought of. Moses raised another objection to God. Master, please, I don't talk well. I've never been good with words, neither before nor after you spoke to me. I stutter and I stammer. God said, and who do you think made the human mouth? And who makes some mute, some deaf, and some sighted, and some blind? Isn't it I, God? The answer to all these things is, yes, it is. So get going. I'll be right there with you, and with your mouth. I'll be right there to teach you what to say. Moses, all his excuses have kind of floundered. And we hit the nub of the problem. He said, Master, please, send someone else. God got angry with Moses. Don't you have a brother Aaron, the Levite? He's good with words. I know he is. He speaks very well. In fact, at this very moment, he's on his way to meet you. When he sees you, he's going to be glad. You'll speak to him and you will tell him what to say. I'll be right there with you as you speak with him as he speaks, teaching you step by step. He will speak to the people for you. He'll act as your mouth, but you'll decide what comes out of it. Now take this staff 
the staff that turns into snakes. Take this staff and use it to do the signs. Now hopefully you know, after many years, uh, most of you uh, being in this church, this text we have, it wasn't written in English. Uh, uh, the Old and the New Testament weren't birthed into uh, English, but they were Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And uh, the bit we just read uh, from Moses' writings, it's in, originally in Hebrew, and I really like the original Hebrew, because apparently it says, my lips are too big and my tongue is too heavy. I can't possibly do my job for you because uh, my facial features means that it's impossible. Moses goes, well, I can speak, technically, God, you're right, but my mouth is altogether the wrong sort of mouth for this job. There are much better equipped mouths to do what you have to do. Uh, and uh, um, that's who you should choose. It's a great idea, God. You know, I love to see your people free. I think it's wonderful that you would use a hero to uh, uh, end their bondage. But obviously I can't with this mouth of mine, with its thick lips and heavy tongue. So great language, I think so anyway. I wonder who of us recognises that we do the same thing when God calls on us. You know, he gives us a little hint, he gives us a little push, he gives us a little opportunity. And the Spirit comes near and says, how about you doing this? And the Spirit comes near and says, how about you go there? And the Spirit says, how about you say this? And he calls us to pray. And we go, God, I'd love to pray, but you have made me too busy to pray. I've got all these responsibilities, I can't possibly pray. I know it's a good thing to pray, but perhaps someone else who you haven't filled their life with so many good things. Or perhaps he's called us to be generous. And go, well, yes, God, we know that being generous is good. Yes, I would love to give away, but you have made me too poor. You have not lavished your riches on me. I am not Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or that guy, uh, Elon Musk. You know, I am just a, a poor person living in a, uh, um, a semi-detached house in Bewbush. God, I know it's a good thing to evangelise. God, I know it's a good thing to spread your word, but you have made me too shy. I am too timid to speak out for you. You must be thinking of the wrong person. Perhaps go and speak to someone who is good at that sort of thing, who doesn't have thick lips and a swollen tongue. Perhaps go and speak to someone that is uh, 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 more suited to this task that you have. And some of us can have even deeper resistances to him. We can go, I just feel inadequate, God. I haven't even got an excuse anymore. I, I just don't feel up to it. I can't manage it. Don't, don't you know who I am and all the failures I've seen? Don't you know all the times that I've tried it and just fallen on my face? Don't you know that I can't afford those costs? I can't afford to risk stuff. I can't afford to do things where 
there is a danger I might not succeed. I just can't take it, God. God threw out Moses' concerns by saying, I made you. Everything you have is down to me. You owe me everything. There is not a constituent part of you that I have not generously bestowed on you. And it reminds me of um, the best bit of the sermon, uh, I think, today, is this parable. Um, I tend to fill up half an hour with my own words, and it's always good to go back to Scripture. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 25, um, and... Uh, if you haven't, listen, I'm going to read from the message um, and there's some wonderful turns of phrase here um, that kind of stop me in my tracks and I hope uh, will stop you too. Jesus said this, It's also like a man going off on an extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one, he gave $5,000. To another, 2000 To a third, 1000 and it depended on their abilities, and then he left. Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same, but the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of the, those three servants came back, and he settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he doubled his investment. His master commended him, good work. You did your job well, from now on be my partner. The servant with 2,000 showed him how he also doubled his master's investment and his master commended him, good work, you did your job so well, from now on you get to be my partner. The servant given 1,000 said, master, I know you have high standards and I hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid that I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and I secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the very last cent. The master was apoplectic. Well, it says furious, but I like apoplectic. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. Just listen to these words, and if they don't strike you at the heart, um, we're going to have to have some counting. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you less do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most. And get rid, listen to this, it's still eating away at my heart. And get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him into another e-learning training course. No, it doesn't say that. It says throw him out into darkness. Not he just needs a little bit more... Uh, upskilling, throw him out into the darkness for his play it safe attitude. I think I could drop the mic there and go. The message is clear. God gives everyone 
differing amounts of blessing. Some get the $5,000, some get the thousand. Every single person in this room and online has been blessed by God to some measure. The godless, those that don't know Jesus, they use their giftings and blessings for their own purposes. You know, they lay by the fields or go climb K2, whatever they fancy, and it's to their own appetites uh, that they slave towards. The immature believer endeavours to risk as little as possible. They hate risk. They hate doing something that makes them uncomfortable. They hate going out on a limb for Jesus. The mature believer, she recognises her gifts. She acknowledges that the gifts aren't an innate quality but come from God. And she risks them all for the kingdom. All of it. She makes sure they're all laid on the line for the purpose of God and his coming reign. This morning, the call seems quite clear. Each of us are to overcome our selfishness, our natural uh, feeling of self-preservation. We're to overcome our fear and we are to seek out the thin air where all our blessings and giftings are laid out on the line in risky situations where only God coming through can bring it to uh, a good end. I've only got two points. That was the first one, and this is the second. Moses replies about having this dodgy mouth. I really like that sort of thick lips and fat, swollen tongue. Um, and it's, uh, God doesn't just uh, answer with, uh, with a question about who do you think made it. God says, I'm going to be with you. It's not, I made your mouth, it's fine, stop complaining. It's, you know what, I made your mouth and I'm going to give you great things to say. I'm going to empower you to achieve my purposes. Moses may write himself off, but God has given him stuff to say. Moses might not appreciate it, but God would use Moses for his purposes. And God will supernaturally transform what Moses does and say into something that becomes legendary. That gets written down and cherished by generations. The Israelites don't get saved by this nobody nomad. They don't get saved by timid, self-doubting shepherd. God himself saves Israelites. He uses this self-doubting, old, nomadic shepherd. And he saves an entire people. And he births a nation that will ultimately see the arrival of Messiah, who will come and bless the whole world, and even us who are thousands of miles from that land of Cana are blessed by what God did through Moses. What is true for Moses here is true for us too. Not only are we to use our gifts to the point that we risk them, but he promises to empower us. He promises 
to come alongside and make sure that we uh, know we are being used. And Jesus was so uh, appreciative of the Holy Spirit. He said, disciples, I don't want you to even step out of the city until the Holy Spirit comes. I want to read this to you, the last reading of today, Acts chapter 19. It says this. Now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul made his way through the mountains and came to Ephesus and happened on to some disciples there. The first thing he said was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Can you hear the importance of the Spirit to Paul and to any community of disciples? The first thing he said was that, did you take God into your mind or only, or did you embrace him with your heart? Did he get inside you? We've never heard of that. Holy Spirit, God with us, what are you on about? How were you baptised then, asked Paul, in John's baptism? That explains it. John preached the baptism of radical life change, that people would be ready to receive the one coming after him. And that was Jesus. If you've been baptised into John's baptism, you're ready for the real thing. Jesus. And they were. As soon as they heard of it, they were baptised in the name of Jesus. Paul put his hands on their heads, and the Holy Spirit entered them. From that moment on, they went, gave 10%, turned up to church on Sunday and went to home group and they had to. No. Holy Spirit comes on. And they were praising God in tongues and talking about God's actions. And there was only 12 of them. Paul then went straight to the meeting place. He had the run of the place for three months, doing his best to make the things of the kingdom of God real and convincing, but resistance began to fall as some of them began spreading evil rumours through their congregation about the Christian way of life. So Paul left, taking these 12 with him and set up shop in the school of Tyrannus, holding class there daily. He did this for two years, giving everyone in the province of Asia ample opportunity to hear the message of the master. And God did powerful things through Paul, quite things quite out of the ordinary. The word got round and Paul start, people started taking pieces of clothing and handkerchiefs and scarves and they touched Paul's skin and they touched the sick with them. And the touch did it and they were healed. And Christians for 2,000 years have been a little bit amused that you can have holy handkerchiefs. His disciples would talk clearly Make sure you get Holy Spirit. You are going to be uh, less than you can be without him. Value him, enjoy him, bring him into the middle. Allow him to change your inner person. And for two years, Paul demonstrated it and did miracles with handkerchiefs and neckerchiefs and scarves and perhaps today it would be masks, I don't know. And he did risky and incredible things. As well as pushing the boundaries of our gifts, we need the help of the Spirit. We don't just go half-cocked into the thin air of Everest, saying, uh, this is what God has ordained for my life. We need the Spirit alongside us. Even the most skilled speaker and richest donor can't bring the kingdom of God an ounce 
an inch nearer. Doesn't matter how clever your words are or how earnest your heart is, it doesn't depend how deep your pockets are. Without the Spirit of God, you cannot bring God's kingdom any nearer. But with Him, even the person with the thickest lips and the most swollen, ugliest tongue can do extraordinary things. Your words, however faltering, can bring salvation. Your prayer, however struggling, can bring healing. Your love, no matter uh, how inhibited it is, can transform communities because it is not you, it is God working through you. And so this morning I just asked for three things from us. Each of us, I want you to consider these three things. Ask yourself, what are your gifts? Don't say you haven't got any, because that option isn't available to you. Everyone has been blessed by God in one way or another. What are your gifts? Second of all, what does it look like for you to lift, use your gifts courageously? Not the play it safe kind, not that it doesn't matter if I fail kind, because those don't just get an e-learning course, they get thrown into the darkness. That is pretty grim. What are your gifts? How can you use them courageously? And thirdly, and by no means leastly, let the Holy Spirit take whatever offerings you have and do things worthy of his name. Because ultimately, no matter how awesome you are at your gifts, it is only with the Spirit that something properly changes. This morning, I don't want us to sit at base camp growing fat and playing it safe, where uh, our eyes fail and we become unable to do anything. We are called to wisely ascend where the air is thin, where if we are sensitive to God, we do amazing things. Let me close and pray. Heavenly Father, the lesson of Moses here doesn't shed him in too good a light, but Lord God, we want to learn from him. God, I pray that each one of us would see the gifts that you have given us. We know it may not be the best of the world at that particular thing, but Lord God, I pray that you'd appreciate the value that you have placed in our lives and the value that we bring to others. Lord God, I pray that every single one of us would be good at being courageous. Lord God, I pray that we would be good at living risky lives with these gifts, that we would do stuff to invest them in the kingdom of God, where we wouldn't play it safe and just sit on our hands. And Lord God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be someone that we are very familiar with. May he be our delight and joy. May he be our constant companion. May he be our comforter. May the paraclete be someone that we know very well and that we talk to daily. And may he take our feeble offerings and may he transform them into uh, miracles, supernatural workings 
where people are changed and the kingdom of God comes that bit near. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.